Um, well, we're continuing to make our way through our series in Ecclesiastes. And one of the things that I was thinking about uh, to start our time off was, uh, was when I was a pastor in St. Louis at a local church, um, we had this area right outside the sanctuary called the Narthex. Have you all heard, ever heard of like a church called the Narthex? It's kind of a weird name. Like the lobby area, okay, it's called Narthex. Well, as staff, we had these conversations that were kind of like surface-level conversations that we would call Narthex conversations. And it kind of went like this. Hey, what's up? How are you? Man, I'm good. You? Yeah, good. Busy. Yeah, me too. Real busy. Yeah, just, man, so busy. Well, good to see you, man. Have a great worship service. That's a Narthex conversation, right? You know what I'm talking about? Just very surface level. Maybe it's maybe it's the RUF conversation sometimes. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, but we would we would have these these names for these types of conversations. And and especially what stuck out to me was was the busy word. And I catch myself saying that a light busy. And um, and what I've been trying to do recently, I, I've really like I've really sanitized it and spiritualized it and, and just kind of say, you know, I've just got a really full schedule these days. Um, it's the same thing. I don't know why I'm trying to hide, but I think this in many ways, when we kind of say this busy word, uh, which we all do, it reveals kind of yet another, whoop, uh, yet, yet another area in which we seek to find purpose and which we seek to find meaning. And that is particularly through what we do, through our busyness, through our work. So we've been taking this little journey with the preacher, trying to find meaning in life. And we've gone through now knowledge, wisdom, or education is kind of the emphasis that we had. Last week, we talked about worldly pleasures. This week, we're going to the area of work, a vocation of what it is that you do and the way in which the preacher seeks to find meaning in that and our busyness, something we can probably all relate to. So I'm going to read our passage for us. I'm going to skip around a little bit. So we're going to skip part of chapter 2. We've kind of covered similar themes. And so I'm going to read starting in verse 18 and then skip over to chapter 3 for a few verses as well. Here's what he says. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be my master of all. He will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have, uh, who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And then chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. There's that word busy. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat 
and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let me pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for um, being able to gather together and just to be in a place of community. Um, Lord, I don't know where each person is coming this evening on uh, what really truly is a cold winter's night. Uh, God, I ask that you would uh, meet with us in this place, in this classroom, uh, on this university, that right now that you would meet us through the working of your word in our hearts and minds through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would do this, and we ask for it in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the the um, tennis player Christine Evert or Chris Evert, but she was one of the great. Uh, she is one of the great tennis players of modern time, but especially she was a leading player in the '70s and '80s. So before your time, but she was a former number one player in the world. She has eight major single titles, and so she actually still holds for women. Uh, she's won a record seven French Opens. She is tied with Serena Williams for the most U.S. Open titles, which is six. Well, listen to what author and pastor Tim Keller writes about her in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Here's what he says. Despite all of the success, which was enormous, obviously, as she contemplated retirement, she was petrified. She said to an interviewer, here's what she said. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by me being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. You are what you do. That's kind of the message. As much as we'd like to avoid this tendency, this idea is ingrained into so much of American culture and certainly how we approach work and vocation. And this is kind of propagated even here, of course, at a university. Just think about what takes place when you meet someone, like particularly after you graduate. It's like, hey, my name's Eric. What's your name? Oh, I'm Jackson. Oh, cool, Jackson. Uh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a drummer or I'm, I'm this or, hey, James, I'm a scientist. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a cellist. That's what I was. We immediately attach, right, someone's sense of identity to what they do for work. I'm a photographer. I'm a musician. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a teacher. But did you hear the burden that Chris Everett's statement and in Chris Everett's statement to the interviewer? She admits this like level of fear, of apprehension, of desperation at this kind of idea, even the very concept of leaving tennis because she has her entire life found her sense of meaning in what she does as a tennis player. And this burden this burden of defining ourselves by what we do is a heavy one. I would call it unbearable, actually. And here's what's more. I would actually expand the burden and the weight that you all carry, especially in Generation Z, which is probably most of you here, to something that's actually beyond comprehension. Because there is an aspect of your work 
that in so many ways is not just in finding a vocation or a job that is, you know, fulfilling. That's, that's, you know, one of the pressures. But you are often working to create something beyond that. The pressure to create a brand, a persona. And so there's so much even more pressure that y'all feel that, and even in ways that I didn't even feel. Listen to what author and professor Alan Noble had to say in his book. Because the further uh, burden that you have is not discovering your true self and creating your own identity, there is this need for external validation. And here's what he says. Everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression. So that at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own names so that everyone else knows that they exist and who they are, which is a fairly accurate description of social media. In other words, this idea that everybody is kind of packed into a room, billions of people, and we're all screaming our name, wanting for somebody to hear us. But listen to the unbearable burden that then goes with this as well. He goes on. To be recognized is to draw the gaze and the attention of others. To be affirmed is to draw their positive gaze. But if we are all responsible for creating and expressing our own identities, and that is the pressure that you are often feeling, then everyone is in competition with everyone else for our limited attention, and no one is secure enough in their own identity to ground us with their approval. How can we cope with such fierce competition? In other words, he's saying when you're in that room screaming, we're looking for somebody to validate us, but we're all so caught up in our own thing that we have no sense of identity to ground us that we're just competing for a voice that doesn't even exist out there or for an attention that doesn't even exist. And that's why I honestly think this burden for self-expression through what we do is actually unbearable because it is. You and I cannot cope with this kind of pressure. And I think our preacher friend is actually here to help us see this truth and begin to help us orient to the proper place of where work and vocation actually ought to be in this common experience as humans. So one of the things that you're going to find out tonight, even in some of the language that I use, is going to be borrowed a lot from this guy, Alan Noble, that I just mentioned. He has a book that's called You Are Not Your Own. It's a great book. And that's really kind of one of the first things I want to say is, is, is we are not your own. You are not your own. But we belong to another. And that means then that this relentless drive to kind of create our own sense of meaning and purpose, particularly through our, through our work, it's something that we actually need to root out of our lives. That's a lot of what I think in terms of application, I hope that you get from this. But at the same time, it doesn't mean just merely ripping it out. It actually needs being replaced with something better. And that's where ultimately the preacher goes, and I want us to go as well, is that God gives this to us. The preacher begins to point us to the way in which we can actually, instead of doing something, we actually receive God's gift of meaning and purpose in our lives. And so then actually work and vocation finds its proper place. So that's where we're going to kind of make our way through this passage in that way. So first of all, we're really invited to root out this relentless drive to create meaning. Um, I think all of us can relate to this first thing that's under there, and that is we're all in some sense workaholics. And so was our preacher. We're told, look at verse 23, okay? Even in the night, his heart does not rest. I'm guessing that if you've been anything like me, you've tried to lay down at bed at night and you just can't go to bed because you're caught up and consumed with what you have to do tomorrow. You're anxious about what's to come. You're anxious about what maybe somebody thinks about you, whatever it may be. 
We can all, I think, relate to that idea that even at night, our heart does not rest. And there is, as he says in verse 23 as well, sorrow and vexation. Alan Noble talks about it this way, and he's, he's really referring here mostly to my generation, which I, I tremble to, to name the reality that I'm actually a millennial. Barely, okay, I'm barely a millennial, so don't um, be too judgy. But here's what he says. Millennials often suffer from workaholism, happily working more than 40 hours a week and feeling guilty when we aren't working. I think that's a lot of tr- very, very true of a lot of my peers. But even when we aren't, quote, working, we are optimizing ourselves so that we can have a fuller and satisfying life. In other words, in addition to working at our jobs, we are working on our own self-expressionism since everything depends upon me. And that's the message that you're constantly told. So even outside of work and vocation, you have this work to become uh, your own self-expression person. And that you're supposed to find that sense of meaning and identity. So he's honest about this, the preacher is. But he's also honest about the thorns and thistles. That's kind of the idea behind sorrow and vexation that he talks about in verse 23. He's frustrated. He's annoyed. He's worried. And so that's something that he can very much, we can relate to as, it, as, it, uh, as he experiences this as well. Even to the point in verse 20 where he actually turns himself to despair. He experiences how difficult work is and actually goes to a place of despair. Now we know, and we've, we've talked about this in previous weeks so far, that the preacher is pursuing this in a very humanistic way that is sort of devoid of God. He is, he is doing this sort of search through a human-centered kind of way. And, and this is, again, very much the message that you all are given as well, is, is, is this pressure to, to make ourselves the center of what we do. And he kind of draws a conclusion in verse 22 about how satisfying this is. Verse 22 is very much a rhetorical question. Let's look at it. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart, which which he toils beneath the sun? He's kind of asking, like, what am I getting out of this? By making myself the sinner, what am I getting out of this? And his conclusion is basically like, I'm not getting what I want. This is not worth the effort. And especially considering when the fruit of my labor often goes unnoticed, and especially when I die. So verses 18 and 19, when he's talking about this, this uh, you know, after he dies, he's not really sure who's going to get his, the fruits of his labor, who's going to sort of take over the family business, if you will. And he's concerned that, that a fool is going to take over. And so what do I get? You don't get anything. Like when you die, you're left with nothing. This kind of reminds me of uh, what the pharaohs of Egypt, you, you all have probably seen these pictures of like the pharaohs that are buried. And what do they do? They, they pack all of their riches and wealth along with them, thinking that they're going to take it to the next life. I think that's often sometimes the way we view our lives, not with maybe physical things, but you have this enormous pressure to be something in life, to leave a legacy, to make a lasting difference in the world. And that is, after all, so much of the message that you're fed at a very early age as well as you are here to make a difference. Listen again to Alan Noble about the burden of this. The burden of justifying your own life is too much to bear. How can you be sure that your life matters? There are billions of people in the world today and billions more have come before you. Long after you are gone, the world will keep turning and people will go on eating and drinking and making love. You will be forgotten just as you have forgotten your great-grandfather's name or at least your great-great-grandfather's name. No matter how remarkable you are historically, statistically, you are unremarkable. 
the preacher is taking us through this journey as he seeks to make meaning out of what he does, out of his work. And guess what he finds once again? It falls short. Let me tell you a story about a girl, a really tragic story about a girl named Madison Holleran. Uh, Madison uh, had straight A's in high school. Uh, she ran track in uh, high school. She helped her uh, high school soccer team. I think it was in New Jersey. Went on to win two state titles. Uh, she was charismatic. She was beautiful. And so she was recruited, especially for sports at several different schools. One was Lehigh. So she was recruited by Lehigh to be a soccer player. And then she was recruited by both Harvard and Penn to run track. And so she initially decided and actually committed to Lehigh. Hey, I'm going to go play soccer. But something like just didn't jive with her. And so she pulled out and went for the more prestigious Ivy League uh, at Penn. So she managed uh, to, to make her way to Penn as a track runner. And in her first semester, like all appearances on the outside, like three, she did great. 3.5 GPA. She had friends. She had support from family. And yet just as she was starting her second semester, she took her own life. Why? She worked at it and she had everything. She had it all. She had the brain. She had the beauty. She had, she had it all. Now, of course, as a quick aside here, there's, of course, a needed conversation about mental illness. Okay. And I will just sort of quickly say as well, uh, knowing uh, the size of this room and even knowing where I have been and, and knowing that I sat in, the, in your chair not too long ago as a college student. I know the temptation perhaps to even go to these kinds of despairing thoughts. And if that's ever you, I want, first of all, to, to know that you're not alone, that I'm happy to talk to you, and I know so is Nick. And I'm sure you have other trusted friends and perhaps pastors. And so I would encourage you that if you ever find yourself in that place, don't hesitate to talk to somebody. And I'm happy to be that person. But some of the cultural phenomenon that contributes to mental illness, this kind of mental illness especially, has to be addressed and talked about. And one of those is the unbearable and relentless drive to create our own meaning and happiness and to be justified in our existence by a watching world. I read an article about Madison, and one of her friends uh, was interviewed. And here's what she says. One of her friends admitted that she missed her family, that's first semester, her friends, and soccer. She also feared turning down Lehigh soccer scholarship, that it was a mistake, and her friend also saw her struggle with the burden particular to their generation to have a great time, always, and to post pictures about these revels on social media. She goes on to say this, on social media, everyone presents a false picture of their life. No one ever posts a picture of themselves looking sad. Everyone is at the coolest party. And I think some of us wonder sometimes, why isn't my life like that? Why don't I feel like smiling like them? The version of herself that Madison projected to the world online offered no clues to the turmoil she had held inside. Her Instagram stream is rife with pretty pictures, and any stress she expressed on Twitter reads like a typical schoolgirl patter. Madison hid the unbearable burden of making meaning for herself. She felt such a pressure to be a certain kind of thing, whether that was for herself, for her parents, for her peers, whatever it may be. She felt that. And the interesting thing is you have these, these tools that are designed actually to perpetuate this burden at your fingertips. Listen again to Alan Noble. 
the average preteen in America has the same basic tools for publicity that only the biggest Hollywood stars had 60 years ago. Have you ever thought about that? I thought that was a really interesting statement. That because of this thing that you now have in your hand, access to social media, you can do everything a celebrity, only a celebrity could do 60 years ago. He goes on. Where the paparazzi or celebrity gossip magazines used to publish every major life in a star's life, social media now allows every user to make the same announcement. Or if it's like you have an opinion about something that you would get asked about if you were a celebrity, guess what? You now have access to let the world know that. It's the whole idea behind going viral. And here's what I want to say as it relates to that kind of pressure that not only then relates to, by the way, the pressure that you already feel in your own pursuit of your vocation and want to have a satisfying career, but this work that you have to project a certain kind of image. And let me just say a few things to this. First thing, you are not designed to bear the weight of working for your own identity and purpose. And my encouragement to you by way of kind of applying this very sort of directly and simply is acknowledge this. Like be honest with yourself that you are not designed to do that. You are not designed to kind of build your own persona and for you to get meaning and purpose out of that. It's not what you're designed to do. Second thing is make yourself more aware of these kind of unique challenges that you face in our modern day. In other words, working for the perfect career, working for the perfect spouse, working for this kind of perfect personality, all defined by you and to be shared with the watching world so that they can justify your existence. This is only a growing phenomenon and an easy one to get access to. And it feeds something that is so damaging. So that's the last thing I want to say to this that I hope is helpful is seek to root this out. Because at the end of the day, the pressure that you are feeling to do this is you are seeking to create a false and unattainable self. You're seeking to create a false and unattainable self. And for some of you, sometimes, and maybe you don't feel it now, but maybe you have, or maybe you are, it's crushing you. And I'm sure you know people like this if, if this is not you. You know it's crushing people. So root it out. And that's where also we need community and awareness of our own lives to see that with, from other people. But second thing is, I want to turn to the second point here, is to then replace it with something better. So if, if we have this need, need to see and understanding that we cannot create our own sense of meaning through what we do, we actually need to replace it with something, and the something is actually given to you as opposed to something you do. And so the second point is simply this. Receive God's extravagant gift to you where he gives you meaning. And some of the things that the preacher goes to in here is very simple, uh, but I think honestly pretty profound. One of the first things that he says is simply enjoy your work. Yes, your work and the fruit of it will not last. And yet it's really interesting. He says, enjoy it nonetheless. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil and then also in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3, I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, that they should take pleasure in all his toil. Y'all, it's worth noting that you are designed to work. Like, it's not bad. It's wired in us. It's part of the way that God created us. Of course, 
If you think about the very beginning of Genesis 1 and 2, he designed us to be workers. There's something really good about that. The same with enjoying food, the basic necessities of life. There is beauty all around us, and there is something right and good in taking pleasure in eating and drinking. My daughter, Cora, loves strawberries. Every time we get strawberries from the grocery store, she wants strawberries for lunch. That's what she wants. And she loves them. I think sometimes we need to actually have this childlike wonder restored. Enjoy a strawberry. And with all of that, the idea here then is that we are not at the center of those enjoying those enjoyments, but rather it's good, but whether it's God. And so we place God at the center as opposed to us. Because notice his capacity to enjoy food and work. Where does it come from? Verse 24. This I saw is from the hand of God. Verse 13 of chapter 3. This is God's gift to man. So even amidst the destructive state of the world, there are, if you will, echoes of Eden, echoes of the way God created things. But in order to enjoy these things, God must be at the center, not us, and even not the thing itself. And so work cannot give you meaning. Food cannot give you meaning. It's not up to you to determine your meaning. God is the one who gives you the meaning. And so back to what I was saying at the very beginning, we fundamentally don't belong to ourselves, but to God as our creator. And therefore, the last thing to simply say is he is the one who gives us life and purpose. And that's kind of where the, the, the preacher lands in all of this conversation about God's lordship and sovereignty over all things. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. And notice also in verse 11 that there's this really kind of strange statement. He says, God has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. A lot of what he's articulating here is that God is Lord. He is sovereign. He is so other. And yes, you have this unsatiable sort of thirst for something beyond ourselves that is eternal, which, by the way, means that you are actually remarkable, not unremarkable. But this is not something for us to discover. And that's kind of obviously even something maybe that makes it infuriating because he says here, we can't find out what God has done. And that's part of the secret to this is it's not, we're not meant to. So, so much of what he's getting at is that your life and purpose comes in submitting to God's lordship, to his sovereignty over all things. You fundamentally don't belong to yourself, but you belong to another. Let me close with this story. I came across a story about a guy named Ruben Pardo. And for over 40 years, he has uh, done a very mundane job. He has driven and steered one of the last manual elevators in Los Angeles in California. Uh, And so his life, very simple. Okay, every day he wakes up, he goes to work, and these young, bright graphic designers or web branders or search engine optimizer, I don't even know what that means, uh, rides their elevator to their uh, offices, okay? And every day, here's what happens. Pardo greets them by name because he knows all of them. And while employees kind of come and go out of the offices, Pardo has been a fixture there for, like I said, over 40 years. Well, Pardo 
Uh, Pardo, I lost, lost my last page here. Hang on a second. Uh, Pardo was, was born in Mexico City. And when he was seven years old, his family moved to the States. And, uh, and, and, and even though he had to work a lot, uh, in parking garages, shoveling snow, and also in elevators, much like the one he still was in. He was able to support himself and eventually get married and have a family. And so even uh, when this article was written, which I think was about a decade ago, he still worked six days a week, and that's what he would do. But here's the interesting thing. Every Sunday, he would do one thing. As a gesture of gratitude, particularly for his wife, uh, he would take her out to eat. So here's what he said. I would take her out every Sunday so she can relax. That's my personal gift to her until God takes us away. My wife and I, we're happy. And so while these people would come into the office, they would go to school, they get married, they travel the world, Pardo simply has led this very mundane, steady, constant life that he's done for all these decades. And his conclusion is this. I love my small little world. Now, I don't know if Pardo is a Christian, he obviously acknowledges God's existence on some level. But regardless, I feel like he captures something that I think is really helpful for us. He captures elements of what it looks like to fight against this relentless drive to define ourselves by what we do. Now, undoubtedly, he had pride. He had enjoyment in being an elevator operator. He obviously enjoyed food. He liked taking his wife out and enjoying those things. But what you don't see is this kind of insatiable drive to feel like he has to be something more than that, to climb up the corporate ladder, to post about his adventures on social media. He lived a rather mundane, ordinary life and was content with it. He enjoyed food. He enjoyed his work. He expressed gratitude at it. He enjoyed his wife. But he seemed on some level to understand that he belonged to something greater than himself. And maybe that was God. I hope it was. If nothing else, he saw that his work and sort of this uh, this pursuit of success and creating this kind of persona and meaning did not fully depend upon him. And that's what I want to help you sort of leave you with and to capture from this passage. It's simply this. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to another. And so I hope that you realize that this relentless pursuit of self-expressionism will actually crush you sooner or later. So the encouragement that I want to leave you with is to replace it with something that God has for you, that he simply gives to you, and that is meaning and purpose that is found in him. And as he says in this passage, it comes actually in fearing God. And at the very end of the, the book, we'll get to this. It's also fearing God and keeping his commands. It comes in living the life that God meant us to and through obedience. But of course you do this ultimately through the person of Jesus. So of course this is, the only way you can do this, because without Jesus, you won't be able to enjoy work. You're going to idolize it. You won't be able to enjoy food. You're going to depend upon it in unhealthy ways. And so the way that we keep God at the center rather than ourselves is by seeing that we have this sinful tendency to place ourselves at the center. But Jesus gives us a different answer. He came to correct that. He came to restore the true meaning and purpose for humanity. And he gives that to you as a gift that he offered as a result of his death, as a result of his resurrection. He offers this as a gift to you. So that's my encouragement to you, is accept this gift of meaning and purpose that can never come from yourself. Receive it from God. Let me pray.
We thank you, Lord, for your word once again. And we ask, God, that you would be at work in our lives. Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, because all of us, to some degree or another, seek to find meaning in what we do. We identify ourselves by what we do and how well we perform and the successes or failures that we have. And there's also this added pressure, particularly in our modern age, to put up a certain kind of persona, create a certain type of personality. And there's so much pressure that can come with that. And Lord, I simply pray that you would free us by helping us see that this is not something that we can do on our own. And so I pray that we would be honest with ourselves, that we are seeking to create a false self, and that we would embrace the free gift of meaning and purpose that comes through Christ and Christ alone. So Lord, help each one of us open our eyes, help us to be honest with ourselves, and to embrace and to receive the gift that is ours in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.